This is It Just Takes One. One person, one experience, one idea, one moment to change your life. Here's what's coming up on today's show. We have this saying back home that says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Hundreds of people literally clawing each other, fighting to want to be on the last couple of flights that were leaving the city. And I kind of always hope that I will be going back one day. In a way, I'm still unpacked. Hello, this is Kelly Watson, and you are listening to It Just Takes One. There is a Khalil Gibran quote which says, The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. I can't think of a more appropriate way to summarize the experiences of my guest today, Lily Piplitsa. Lily was born in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, and lived a very normal childhood until the Bosnian War found its way to her city. In 1992, when Sarajevo was besieged, Lily's life changed dramatically. Within days, she found herself being physically attacked by neighbors she had known her entire life, ducking under sniper fire outside on the streets, and hiding under tables in her apartment as the bombs demolished the city around her. What followed were years of living as a refugee. Her journey took her through Serbia, Germany, and eventually to the United States. I met Lily when she had been in the States for a while. We became friends, and over the years, I learned her story. I'm always fascinated by the question, what makes an experience cripple some and motivate others? What makes someone fall to the challenge of adversity and someone else rise up and become even more because of it? Lily is a shining example of someone who rose up and became even more. Her tiny, five-foot, a hundred-pound soaking wet frame contains one of the biggest hearts I have ever known. When you meet her, you immediately feel the love she exudes and the joy that she shares with everyone around her. She has a very special light inside of her, and it radiates outward. I think you're going to hear that light even as you listen to her tell her story. As you listen, I encourage you to put yourself in her shoes. Imagine living the life she has lived. Visualize the moments she describes. How do you think you would have reacted? And how do you think it would have impacted you if you had had to make the choices she was forced to make? Lily has lived a life worth telling a story about. Listen in as she takes you on her journey. Hi, Lily. Hi, Kelly. (laughs) Great to have you on. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me as your second podcast. That's quite an honor. It is. It's number two for me. So I want to start way back at the beginning. I want them to hear a little bit about your life growing up in Sarajevo. Um, You've told me some of the 
the story of what it was like for you as you were going through school and as a teenager. And I just want you to share some of that because I want them to get a, a picture of what your life was like. Okay, so if we start way back in 19, late 1970 and nine, early 1980, I would have been in first grade. And some of the first memories of that would be uh, moving into a brand new fancy apartment that my middle class family has earned. And um, starting elementary school, quite different than what I see here since I teach for a living in the States. Uh, and I always compare the two. I can't help but compare 40 students in the class, eight to nine sections per grade level, um, and yet everybody was wearing um, a uniform. Mm. So we would be united and look the same. Um, I have lived, grew, I was born and grew up and lived until the age of 18 in Sarajevo, which is now capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mm -hmm. A beautiful city. Uh, if you ever have a chance to visit, I suggest highly you do so. Mm -hmm. Um, I have lived with mom and dad and a sister in um, two-bedroom apartment, uh, never thinking anything will ever change for me at that point for many years. Mm -hmm. um, finished elementary school and started high school in the same city. I studied to become a teacher. And I was supposed to be, ironically enough, a German language teacher and a Latin language teacher. And I ended up becoming an English language teacher many years <laughs> later, <laughs> uh, which taught me uh, one of the first valuable lessons in life that as much as you want to hope and dream and plan, we have this saying back home that says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> so here I am teaching English many years later, and I know I'm jumping a little over the place right now, but it's hard to sum up somebody's entire life in um, kind of a podcast of any kind or even a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sum up your whole life in 10 minutes. No, but I really wanted people to hear a little bit about that upbringing because it's so normal. You know, it's what we would experience and people can relate to going to elementary school and maybe not to having everyone wear uniforms. Not every school here does that, but they certainly would understand, you know, it was a very normal life. You lived in a city and, and you had a sister and you were with your parents and, and everything was, you know, looking like you were going to go off to, to higher ed and do teaching. But then right. what happened? When did the war begin to impact Sarajevo and in, in your life? Uh, well, I have to say uh, before the war, something now that I think back, you know, as you're a teenager growing up um, in pre-war Yugoslavia, you know, every year you go to vacations, you party with your friends, you go to school. Yeah, there's another vacation. Um, a couple of years before the war, the war started in 1992 in Bosnia and Herzegovina. But a couple of years prior, we certainly felt that something was going to happen. I don't think we were thinking it's going to be the war. But we knew because um, it was hard to come. Uh, food was becoming expensive. Clothing was becoming expensive. Vacations that we enjoyed every year were becoming scarce. It wasn't as before. Something was in the air. And I want to say that other um, many, many countries that uh, belong to Yugoslavia now, one of them is Croatia, Serbia, Macedonia, Slovenia, we felt, we heard, and we felt a little bit of discomfort around these zones first. Um, there were some, um, how do I say this in English? Uh, people were starting to feel 
shootings, people were starting to experience killings uh, through villages during the night. In the middle of the night, something odd would happen. Meanwhile, we would have less and less food. Bananas were a huge deal for us to come by. So things were changing. We kind of didn't know as children or even adults, we didn't know why, what was going on. And then my personal experience is that all the stories we heard uh, now, meanwhile, Croatia is already having some attacks. Serbia is having some discomfort as well. And we in Bosnia and Herzegovina were completely kind of clueless. We we're thinking this can never happen to us and this is going to blow over and it's just a little bit of political discomfort and it will certainly never reach us. And I guess we didn't see it coming because it literally happened overnight. Hmm. I remember going to a party prior I would say a weekend prior to the war um, actually happening the first day of bombing in Sarajevo. I remember I was at that point, a first year of college at the philosophy university in Sarajevo. I was studying German, of course. And um, I remember preparing for my exams and getting ready for school for uh, the next semester. I believe it would have been March at that point. By April 6th, we had war. So it kind of happened literally overnight where that one prior night we went out and had fun. The next day, the city, the city was under siege. We were under weapons and we were not allowed to move. And it was just a huge surprise. Not and what was myself, that like in that moment? I mean, when you say one night you were out with your friends just having a normal night and then the next night you're under siege, you, you were not allowed to go out. There were curfews. There was bombing. What, what, were, what were you actually experiencing? I think at that point, I, that was the first time I probably realized that in addition to having war happening right in my, uh, in my home, that I didn't know for one of the reasons is because um, I happened to come from a mixed family, uh, meaning my father was Catholic, my mother was Orthodox. And um, come to find out during the war, this is probably the worst thing you could possibly be is to be not quote marks pure blooded. And I grew up in a country where we were celebrating uh, brotherhood and we were celebrating diversity. We were brought up to celebrate and acknowledge and respect every religion possible. I am from a city that has all these religions in one territory. All my neighbors are different religions, but because I was from a mixed religion, no side contacted or recruited my parents. So my parents didn't have weapons uh, where my Catholic neighbors already knew what was going on, kind of. They had some weapons that they had a plan. The Muslim uh, population of Sarajevo as well had some plan, as well as Orthodox. So the friends that went out with not, with us that night happened to have weapons in the morning. And I was very confused and very scared by that fact. I can that imagine. That I was already isolated. And did you understand why you were isolated? Did you understand the, the reason for it at that point? The reason probably came the same day when we were receiving phone calls. There were pure threats. Um, so it is so absurd. It's like waking up in from a beautiful childhood, from a beautiful life of fun and prosperity, minus bananas in the past two years <laughs> prior to war. We had everything else. You wake up and you are not allowed to leave your apartment. 
uh, we were told by our neighbors that actually shared breakfast and lunch and dinner with us for many years. Some of these neighbors knocked on the door and said, we are all under siege. The Serbs at that point were bombing the city. Now Orthodox equals Serb in our, you know, in our parts. My mother being one of them, uh, we were not allowed to know anything more. We were not allowed to leave the apartment. So all we knew for the first couple of days was that we are not allowed to join the neighbors in a basement when everybody was bombing because quote marks mom's side was bombing them. So, and then the phone calls were threatening. So that was a little bit confusing and we were just hoping that everything, the madness will stop. This has to be madness that's going to stop within days. Nobody saw it coming this far. I remember you telling me a story about being in that apartment because you weren't able to get to the basement and, and you were in that apartment and, and the bomb, bombing was happening and you were under the table. Yes, it was indeed my uh, work table where I was still had all my books uh, ready to take on my exams in morphology and linguistics for German and German literature, yet I had to hide under the table but still, I was ready to go and next week and take my exams because I didn't think this was going to last. I think one of the re- the first time I went under the table when the Serbian um, planes uh, broke the the sound barrier, which I didn't know even what that meant at that point. But before that, they flew so low that they all the apartment all the windows in the apartment building where I lived, which was a 17th floor apartment building, uh, they all shattered including ours. And this was a very scary moment where the first thing you think is you go under the table and you think, wow, I've only seen this in movies. I have only seen the, seen this in other countries and a news, new, you know, news uh, channel where you watch some third world countries having a war and yet we're having one. It was, it was becoming real very quickly. Well, I can only imagine how real it felt when you're hiding under a table and the glass is shattering and, you know, it's the, the fear. I have nothing to relate to it. I can only imagine it, but, but I can just hear the sound, even that in itself, um, how scary that had to have been. And then just so uncertain about what was next. Then there came a time because Sarajevo was bombed terribly. Um, it didn't stop the next week and it it kept going. But there came a moment when your mother and father said, you two girls need to get out. It's time for you to leave. Do you remember that moment? It was almost a month later. And I always tell people who want to know about this story. um, I always point out my story is um, very humble. It's kind of Uh, It's hard to compare my story to stories of some of my countrymen from either side, what they've been through. So I was in the war for one one month only, which only is nothing compared to years of other neighbors and family and friends that stayed the entire time. However, one month to an American who has never lived through this or somebody else, it's like, um, it's almost, it's a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, I also want to point out why it was important for us to leave besides being from the mixed marriage at that point. Uh, we have lived by the, um, uh, set the TV station. Uh, the TV station was right across from our building. And that was the first point that wanted that they needed, they needed to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So the heavy, the heaviest bombing was happening right around our neighborhood. 
um, and next to bombing, we had snipers. When we started having snipers, that's when my parents started really becoming concerned because how do you escape a sniper? They were hiding in a building across. It was a very tightly knit neighborhood with a lot of tall buildings, 17, 18, 20 stories high. And snipers were shooting. You couldn't tell from where. Usually if the bombing was happening, we would have a warning of sorts. Siren would start for the most part. But snipers were becoming more and more dangerous where they were, you know, just randomly taking people down. At some of these some of these occasions, people have tried to resume a normal life, would have shooting and bombing for a few days, and then it would kind of stop for a couple of days. People would br- get brave and leave uh, either to get food or to, which was literally walk into the broken store with windows and, and scrape whatever was left on shelves. So I don't want you to think we actually had stores open. We didn't. We would just, you know, go to the neighbor, try to get some potatoes from the neighbor, try to get some bread from somebody else. And on one of these occasions, um, I was actually under the sniper shooting. They were um, shooting very closely right above my head. And I would duck. The the bullets would kind of lower at the same speed. And it was a very scary experience. (laughs) Uh, it took me few so. hours to get home, which would take me literally two minutes to get from A to B. It took me a few hours. My parents were very scared that something has happened because they have heard people shooting outside. Another occasion was when in my building, I was um, conquered by neighbors. And this is um, so hard for me to talk about because I have missed neighbors in this country the way we had neighbors back home. Neighbors back home open your door, they walk in, they sit down, they go into your fridge and they don't leave until midnight. We have lived in a community that was very closely knit. Here in this beautiful neighborhood, I don't know my neighbors. Hmm. So the neighbors I trusted, I grew up with, kind of pushed me to the corner and they poured a gasoline on top of my body and my hair. They were playing with matches and threatening that I if we do not leave this the the city as mixed unpure family you know we will be burnt and i will be the first one so they were playing with matches i obviously they didn't burn me but it was a warning of sorts and it was very scary and it happened at nighttime there was no electricity uh, because of the, you know bombing and everything it was very dark i was coming into the building and i was Conquered. I remember I recognized a couple of them by voice and facial features when they came closer to me with their lighters, but some of them went to school with me. And one young man said at that point, you were always helping with homework, so therefore I'm going to let you off the hook this time. <laughs> so this was the scary part. Those were a couple of instances. There were some more besides being hungry that we kind of had to leave the city and our parents made a decision, and it was a very quick one. It was one of those things when they walked into the room and said, you need to leave. When? Now. That was the moment we left within minutes. And I know we had nothing. I remember having a plastic bag with a couple of pairs of underwear and maybe a shirt, maybe a top or jacket of sorts, and we walked out of the door one last time. And you were 18. I was 18. My Tatiana sister was, was 16. 16, yes. And your parents stayed. 
Um, my father wasn't allowed to, wasn't kind of, he was in the, in the apartment as a male. He was better off staying in the apartment. So mother and us, we left on foot and uh, because public, beautiful Sarajevo public transportation was obviously not functioning. So we walked, I, I would say a half day, a good half of a day to the airport Sarajevo uh, underneath snipers and bombings and we just kind of fled and ran and cried and there was massive people walking in different directions crying it was surreal it was something you see in movies yeah I, I i've often thought about that with you and just that moment as a mother as a father having to make that decision to have your young children leave because it was safer for them to go than to stay. And yet where were they going to go and, and what would happen? Uh, I, I have often thought about that with you and just thought about your dad and your mom, even in that and making that decision. But you ended up at the airport and you went to uh, Serbia, right? They, the American plane took you exactly. to Serbia. Correct. American planes at that point were the only ones uh, allowed to fly. They were there also at the beginning to help us with, you know, um, kind of negotiations and trying to, the couple of days of peace we would have, it would be because they were negotiating and we weren't allowed to fight among ourselves. So on one of those peaceful days, that was one of the days when we knew it was one of the last flights leaving the city. Uh, now we're talking maybe a window of few days that people were allowed to leave at that particular time. So we're talking April, uh, April of 1992. Um, so that didn't prevent people with snipers and occasional people who had some bombs to throw some around. So with some, we made it safely, but funny that journey. I only remember from that journey. I remember uh, people letting their dogs out because they couldn't feed them anymore. People, so those dogs roaming the roads and running after us and coming with us, and all these women and and children all walking towards the airport. Once we came closer, we all had one plan to get out of the city. So we came to the airport, and it's nothing like the airport I go now to, or I remember, or I ever want to go to that kind of airport again. You see hundreds of people literally clawing each other i'm sorry clawing each other fighting to get to the gate trying to be the one to be on the last couple of flights that were leaving the city so i guess we made it we were one of these people elbowing and pushing to safety and uh, at some point we dis we discovered that our mother was uh, uh separated by uh, with us from us she was separated because the armed uh, officers pushed her. They were pushing. They were letting through younger women, young children, I should say, and older women. Anybody who had any shot of surviving or even fighting or being useful during the war, they kind of pushed away. So my mom was taken. She was torn apart. She was taken taken away from us. Oh, I, I can't even imagine that moment. I can't even oh, imagine the, it. The next thing you see is the is the glass, and our mother's on the other side of the glass, squished by hundreds of people, crying our names and screaming. We don't hear her, but we can see the anguish in her face and the fear. I, at that point, wanted to go back home, and I didn't care if I lived or died at that point because what was coming was unknown. It was very scare, scary yeah. to even think what would what would happen to us next how long was it before you saw her again before i saw my mother again it was 
I want to say almost a year. Um, my mother was uh, fortunate enough to, as a Serb slash Orthodox, she was fortunate enough to escape to Belgrade, which that's where we were. That's where the American soldiers left us. And my mother was able to escape with her sick, own sick mother um, after coming, becoming, uh, after getting some doctor notes that sh her mother needs, you know, special care. They were able to pay a lot of money, whatever we had left over to sell some stuff to leave the city a year later. Wow. Um, and so in that year, year, your life changed so dramatically. Well, in that year, I have never unpacked my little bag with clothes. I'm thinking I'm going to go back home. This is all going to stop. I have become a refugee with my sister that has a refugee ID card. And I learned that I have to play the game because at that point in Serbia, I was not allowed to say my father was Catholic. I was a pure Orthodox Serb. That way I could stand in line every other week and receive some canned foods and some sugar and maybe a potato or two. And we have lived in a refugee center, my sister and I. Uh, we have slept with close to 200 people in one large room, um, on the floor mostly, sometimes in a mat, whatever we would grab to sleep. That's where we were until we saw mother again, which was for almost about a year. And you were the oldest, so you became the mother. You took care I of her. Mother. <laughs> not that she's not capable. She's a, a strong woman in her own right and, and has made her way. But there came a moment when you had to decide where you were going to go. And both of you, you and Tatiana, your sister, chose different places. And that's another fascinating moment in your story. You chose Germany. She chose London. Right, correct. What was, what was that moment like? That moment when well, you both went a different direction? That was, again, another moment where we, uh, meanwhile, quickly, uh, we, we, why we even chose was because we tried to go to a family member or two or five, some of them in Croatia, some of them in Serbia, and we tried to pick where we we're going to go. We weren't kind of welcomed in many of them. So we really, truly became isolated, and we knew we can't survive in Serbia because we lived in one meal a day. And so we decided to, uh, my sister decided to uh, escape with friends who were, who had connections with Jewish, who had connections with Jewish community. Jewish community was well organized and they were transporting their people to London, UK. And my sister um, actually claimed that she is Jewish and she doesn't have her paperwork because it has burned down in the war. So she has, she was at that point 17 years old and she decides to join the Jewish community and actually was, um, you know, visiting synagogue for a couple of years in London afterwards um, as a sign of uh, gratefulness. So she escaped to London. I, however, um, had my former, my ex-husband who back then was, you know, you know my boyfriend, Mm -hmm. uh, we were, he was already in Germany. His journey is a whole different chapter, how he ended up there. And I have gotten myself onto a train without talking about being brave back then, without any paperwork, without any money, without any luggage. I climbed, I went on the train and I was, um, lucky that I was, I had an angel on that train because that guardian angel was a conductor 
who quickly realized not only I didn't have a ticket, but that I was a refugee from Bosnia. And he has hidden me on his, in his bunk bed every time we were crossing the border. So nobody <laughs> actually knew I was on the train. That to me was an incredible story, but, but it speaks a lot to the person that you are. You know, I was listening to you say that what you remember about the trip to the airport was the dogs and, you know, that, that somebody found you and, and took care of you in some way, you know, and got you across a border with no papers, which had to be terrifying um, because that's part of who you are. You, you attract a lot of good energy to you and animals and good people. Um, find their way to you. And that's just part of your gift. So I love that story. Um, although it doesn't surprise me that somebody on the train took care of you and and, and saw that, that they could help you and, and were willing to do that. That's just, you've had that happen many times in your life. I still, I'm still impressed because he was Hungarian because that would be the first border to cross. And we didn't understand each other, but he understood my, fa- my face. He understood my tears and he knew who I was by just, you know, putting a looking at me once or twice he decided to hide me so forever grateful yeah and you know we say on this on this podcast the whole point is it just takes one and I think there are so many moments in our lives where it's just one person or one incident or one experience that changes everything and and he's certainly one of your many ones (laughs) that you've encountered in in your journey yes I have so you get to Germany and you meet Beresloff there your boyfriend and you got married. We uh, culturally were not supposed to live together, um, and God forbid, uh, pregnant. Which we did both of those things, and then we got pregnant. We got married. <laughs> things, you know, we become westernized very quickly. Um, <laughs> yes, we have. Uh, we got married after I found out that at, now I'm at age of 20, 20 years old at that point. And I will, I will, we will have a child on our way. So that was a, a, a whole another chapter opening at that point, because now we have a precious cargo, whatever we go that we have to take care of. Now, meanwhile, the entire time, I don't know where my parents are. I'm not sure if they're alive or dead. I remember watching in Germany, um, a lot of very explicit uh, news for, uh, for uh, news um, about Sarajevo. Unlike in America, it's very explicit. It's nothing is uh, bleeped out or nothing is censored. So you would see dead bodies in the street. You would see bombing. You would see. I have recognized high school and elementary school friends among the piles of dead, and that was very scary because it was also a lot of that was happening around the area where my father was living. We knew mother was in Serbia. Uh, but we had no more connection with her because of uh, the embargo that was put out onto Serbia during the war. Our phone lines were not working great anymore. And we didn't know if the father was alive at that point. So you were in Germany for four years, but in that time you did actually get to go see your mother. Uh, yes, two years into my life. Into, well, um, actually, yes, Diana would have. So three years into the life in Germany when the, our first daughter, Diana, was born. We were able to see my mother for a few days in Hungary. The three years between us have uh, changed some things to the better, where we were allowed to travel to Hungary. Otherwise, we were only allowed to travel within the city in Germany that we lived in, not even in the Germany. We weren't allowed to make any trips as refugees. But the window opened. And I always think how funny that that window opened 
um, in the last moment possible for me to see my mother because my mother died shortly right after that. So, um, yes, we have seen my mother and he, she has seen my child once for a very few days uh, on a very short vacation of sort of a family reunion. And at that point, my father already has escaped Sarajevo. Um, he was a man of 200 pounds who was down to barely 100 pounds and very sickly, but he has escaped and he has joined his sisters in Croatia since he was Catholic. So, yeah. And it's interesting because I knew your father. Um, we'll talk about when he came over, but um, I only knew him to be at about 100 pounds. I never even imagined that he could have been anything other than that. <laughs> that was the, him being homesick. Mm-hmm. That's that was same in America being homesick. But yeah. go ahead. I don't want to. Yeah, no, that's um, that's part of the story too. But so you were in Germany. You, you did get to see your mother. She passed away. And how long was it before you saw Tatiana again? Ten years. We were um, about ten years. We were not allowed to see each other while I was in Germany four and a half years or so because uh, the fear was that the family wants to reunite and stay together. So since we didn't have um, any equivalency of green card in Germany, we were just passing refugees. We were not allowed to make any connections with family that would result in staying with family. For the same reasons, English people, English government wouldn't let anybody in my, my status to go to England and visit my sister. As a matter of fact, my father has tried and he was kept at the airport for four days before he was returned. He wasn't allowed to see my sister. That's one of the saddest moments, I think, in, this, you know, in the past 20 years. When he cried, they were both at the airport trying to see each other. My, my sister bringing some pro bono lawyers with her, but they were not allowed. My, my family wasn't allowed to, to see each other, not even through the gate. So wow. after ending up in America, I had to become a citizen first so that I can invite my sister to visit I had to claim um, some bank account, some savings, and I had to make sure I had a citizenship before I can travel or have somebody over as a visit. So it took about 10 years. Wow. Wow. Again, I think about that too. You know, you guys were so close and um, everything that you went through and then gone and, and not able to see each other again for 10 years. Luckily now you see each other pretty regularly. So that's, that's a happy ending there, but, um, pretty traumatic at the time. So in Germany, I think I remember you saying that they only allowed refugees to stay for four years. Is that right? Oh, after four years, uh, the war is uh, coming to an end uh, and people were starting to return. And um, they said, uh, I guess if the war continued, we maybe could have stayed longer. But since the war was ending, we um, uh, we were literally forced to go back home. Throughout the life in Germany, every three months, we would have to go to an uh, immigration office and wait for hours before we would ask, be asked all these questions. Do you live, how do you live here? Um, are you um, a burden to our system? Are you working? Do you have an apartment? If all of these things are positively answered, you've got to stand for another three months. So your life in Germany was every three months. It was three months to three months. There was no safety in that life. Um, you don't feel as a young couple that you can even afford or even you should buy anything for the apartment or acquire anything else for the baby because we might have to leave in three months. 
um, of course, um, one of these appointments ended up, uh, um, you know, in them telling us we no longer can stay. And we get this big red stamp across our IDs that says we will be deported within a few months. This is when we start looking into other opportunities and we applied everywhere, including America. And nobody answered except American government. They wanted us for an interview. And so as long as we were in some, some sort of a process of resettling, uh, Germans were not allowed to return us back. Meanwhile, other people were ending up in jails because they were trying to stay in Germany. And I know a lot of people who actually were, they spent up to a year or two in Germany's prison or jails because they have tried to stay. So we couldn't play that card. It was too dangerous for us. Mm -hmm. So we applied. And thank goodness you did, because here you are. But one of my favorite parts of the story, <laughs> several of them coming up, because this is the part where, where I ended up getting to meet you. But one of my favorites is when you came and you came through the refugee center here in Utica, Mohawk Valley Refugee Center. And they said that they had some work for you, but you didn't speak English very well. Tell that story. There was something uh, to be said about pride where you have, you're not used to getting anything for free. So now in this country, we're having this free house and Blondina Street and some benefits and uh, I believe it was uh, $12 in cash for toiletries for soap and other good stuff in the bathroom. So I said, I want to work. And of course, soon enough, I was recruited through a refugee center to do work. Uh, the only work I could ever do was study. I was never experienced any hands-on except my short, my refugee life. I've done some cleaning and other stuff in Germany and Serbia. Um, nothing fancy. So I really had no experience in anything else, but I have, um, if I may use the word lied, that I did. So they asked me if I can sew, and I said, absolutely. Now, of course, there's an interpreter because I don't speak a word of English, English at that time. Um, there was a factory in Herkimer where we were sewing curtains, I believe. And at the same time, Conmed is hiring, which was a, a manufacturer, local manufacturer of, of medical supplies here in Utica, New York. And they asked me if I'm good with, you know, uh, small, uh, more, um, you know, moving my fingers quickly and working with different machines. I said, absolutely. <laughs> so I just wanted to work. I was not feeling comfortable with having things handed to me because that's not what we used to. So I took both jobs. However, Conmed was more appeal appealing because I got hired within minutes because I passed a very hard test that day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was another moment where things changed. I just want to clarify, um, because people don't really necessarily know what happens when refugees come in, and you're talking about things being handed to you and, and they, they set you up. But I just want to clarify for people what that process is, because as people come in through the Refugee Center, they are actually given some 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 services and some things to get them started. But what are the... What are the requirements of that and what are the rules of that uh the rules are that you are going to uh be uh you, you arrived we arrived as bosnian and croatian and serbian refugees we have arrived here with a green card which is a huge start a heads up uh, compared to refugees that we have coming you know other kinds of refugees coming here so for our program we have uh, we have received tickets plane tickets from wherever we were in my case was germany and coming to JFK 
um, there was an organized escort to bring us to the Syracuse um, airport, uh, actually from the, you know, from the JFK to the uh, um, boarding gate to Syracuse, because of course we don't speak English. So there's people waiting for us from a church. We got Syracuse. Uh, from there, we were placed right away within, in an apartment. So it was kind of very organized. So you receive um, Medicare as a refugee of, my, of our status. Uh, you receive a uh, room and board. You receive some food stamps. Um, I really don't remember how much. It obviously goes by family members, how many you have, and some cash, very little overall, but yet enough to uh, you know, start you. The rules are also that you can also, well, can I just have to mention the furniture. The furniture was excellent uh, learning experience to try to furnish your new house because every Wednesday there was a, a garbage day. We would run around and grab whatever we find. <laughs> so I discovered that if I remove a big cushion in the middle of the couch and bring that home, nobody will take that couch. So now I have time to send men for the rest. <laughs> um, everything else besides the things we found on the street, we had to return. So uh, the rule is you start a refugee school where you learn English. In my case, my ex-husband did that. I wasn't allowed because the child was too small and uh, they would have to pay for babysitter. So I learned English different ways, TV being one of them. Um, meanwhile, um, as a refugee center offers you a job, I believe you had the right to refuse that job once. A second job you had to take or you lose all the benefits. Once you start working, you have to slowly but surely repay everything you were given, including that plane ticket. And that's exactly what we had to do. So it's really just a leg up to get you started and so that you at least have some, some ability to get underway. And they, right. they you know, make that a, a bridge so that you can get on your feet. So you worked at ConMed and you didn't speak English. Um, you didn't have a great skill set at that point because you didn't know you know, anything about manufacturing, certainly. Uh, just share any one of the many stories you've told me about your time at ConMed and, and what that was like for you, how, how you dealt with that whole situation. Oh, um, it was, the test I had to take was, I had to screw little screws into a tiny hole using, I had to decide quickly which screwdriver to use, which was very foreign to me. I never had to uh, deal with fine more skills of that level. So I really didn't know, I knew it was a factory. I really didn't know what I was going to be doing. And I was scared because I would not have an interpreter next to me at that point. So I remember, I don't remember the words they told me, but I know the first words I learned the first day were welding and <laughs> uh, norm and clicker because um, I was quickly explained while the interpreter was still there, I have to very quickly make the norm, meaning so many pieces a day or I'm going to lose my job. It was a kind of clear cut there. So it was a very scary experience to walk into a huge room full of machines, very loud, where you have your supervisor yelling, screaming at you in a language you don't understand because everything else around you is, it's just very loud. And you're wondering why is she yelling? I don't understand her in the first place. But uh, <laughs> it was a very, so the emotions all came. And I was, we were told by other Bosnian refugees. Now I know that's not the truth. But back then people, maybe lack of, maybe lack of understanding with English, maybe fear of her survival. We were kind of instructed that we can't cry. 
We cannot say no. We have to do what we ask to do or we're going to lose our jobs. And therefore, health insurance and unlike our country, if you get sick here, you will die. Nobody will take care of you if you don't have health insurance. So, of course, here I am, a mother of a two-year-old. Um, I'm going to do what it takes for me to do the job. So I was handed a smock, which was another word I learned that day. And it was very big for me because I was very small and underweight at that time. Um, so and a hairnet and I was brought to a big machine and I was instructed to push buttons and weld two plastic pieces together. I didn't know what those were. I didn't understand a word, but I was able to, to watch my supervisor show what, what needs to be done. And I remember very quickly swallowing those tears and fear and the heart racing as she stood next to me. The second she departed from me, I let everything right out and was bravely swallowing the rest of the tears for a few, few months after that, because it was hard for me to understand that I am somewhere else caught up from my family far away, not knowing what I'm doing. I really wanted to become a professor actually at the university of languages. And here I am pushing buttons and plastic pieces together. And I thought that was just going to be the rest of my life. And there were so many stories that, that we can't get into all of them, unfortunately, but I want to share one because I think it was a pivotal moment in that time where you were, you were really doing something that was very scary. You didn't ha- understand the language. You didn't understand what they were making. You didn't understand what you were doing. And there was always this constant fear that if you didn't do it, you weren't going to have a job and your benefits and all of those things. But there was one woman in particular who was very difficult and caused you a lot of problems. Talk about her because she ended up being a pivotal person. She became a one in your life. A very interesting one. Um, on, um, I have quickly caught up. Uh, I have decided quickly that I, if I stick with Americans, I have a better shot to learning English, which was the goal. So I, I did just that for a few weeks and I learned some English and was quickly promoted, believe it or not, into a trainer of Russian and Bosnian people because I was the only person who knew a few words. So I started to be singled out from the group of large group of employees. The supervisors would come and say hi to me. I guess I was interesting to them. So that one person in particular did not like my new role and um as somebody who is almost like a teacher's pet (laughs) or supervisor's pet at that point and i remember going to the bathroom and nodding hi to her while she's washing her hands uh when everything changed her smile disappeared when she realized it was me who entered the bathroom in a slow, I see her in a slow motion turning towards me. Now, at that point, she's probably well over 300 pounds. Uh, she runs towards me and she throws herself against me, shoulder against my shoulder, and slams me against the wall. Mm-hmm. And her words were clear. She wanted me to go back to where I came from. I was taking her job. I was taking the job of her, that her family could have had. With very little English that I possessed at the time, this is what I kind of gathered from what she was screaming at me about. Um, I didn't say anything I couldn't answer in English. I was very scared. I kind of went into the bathroom. I stayed there for half an hour, (laughs) making (laughs) sure she's out of my way. I tried to avoid her. Um, 
two more women join her clique and they have in the next few months they have threatened me and they have actually slashed the tires on my car on two occasions and all the other not cool things so i was very threatened by those people and why she's important you wonder is because <laughs> she made me um go back to school she made me learn english she made me lie a few more times that i know something when i didn't <laughs> and promote myself into different positions and con med uh one of the job openings that as a clerk office clerk where they asked me hey, do i know you know computers and i said sure yes well, that weekend i went to a private library and i was typing away trying to turn the thing on and off trying to see what this is all about and get a crash course from the librarian before I started working. So yes, she helped me move uh, my first couple of steps on the ladder. <laughs> that was the woman. She was certainly uh, an angel in disguise for me. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's a, a beautiful way to say it, an angel. It's, you know, sometimes the, the experiences we have or the people we meet are, are that make us better are sometimes the ones that are the worst to us. And I think you know, that's exactly the motivation that she provided, um, certainly launched you in another direction. And not only did you take some other jobs and get off of the line where you were working, but you ended up going back to school and, and tell about your degrees because you have multiple ones now. <laughs> well, Conmed was, I told Conmed, I'm leaving. I want to be a phlebotomist. I don't know what I was thinking. I came and looked at blood without fainting, but I want to be a phlebotomist. <laughs> so they realized, oh, she speaks few words of English. We can't let her go because we had a big influx of Bosnian refugees at that point. Now, I don't speak Russian, but I had to train Russian employees because of the language is somewhat similar. So that was another <laughs> interesting point in my life. So they found me very valuable and they um, said they will pay for my education if I stay. So that was an easy decision because, of course, I stayed. Um, and I really wanted to get a couple of courses to, under my belt so that I can really, really conquer my word processing so I don't have to type many hours just a short little memo and take homework home every night uh, or to public library. So, yes, I wanted to finish a couple of few night classes where I can get some office skills. Um, those turned into associate's degree. They turned into an undergrad in international marketing uh, degree. Then they turned into information design te in technology, master's degree. And then parallel with that one, I have finished my educational degree to, uh, you know, enable me to become an elementary school teacher. <laughs> so I took a very long road to the first dream I ever had, which was to become a teacher. And, and picked up a lot of skills along the way. A lot of skills. I met a lot of cool people. Yeah, a lot of great experiences. And so now you work in the Utica City School District as a, well, you said they, it's not ESL anymore. What's it? What have they changed it to? It's, it's changed to English as a new language, which is uh, politically correct because refugees speak often more than one language. So English is not their second language necessarily. It's more like the third or fourth language sometimes. So English is a new language is the new yeah. term. That's a, that was a new term when you mentioned that not too long ago. And I thought that's kind of interesting. Um, so many of these people coming in do speak multiple languages. And, and so it isn't a second language. So that brings you to today. You now have two beautiful daughters and um, talk a little bit about them and what they're doing. The two beautiful daughters uh, came with the rest of the American dream. Unfortunately, part of becoming Americanized 
we always laugh about this and this is a joke is to get divorced <laughs> and move on and like nothing happened because culturally this this wasn't supposed to happen unfortunately uh whatever happened all the experiences we have experienced my ex-husband and i brought us apart so this left me with two daughters uh, on this continent without family except the father who has passed away six years ago now I was able to bring my father. He was with us for a few years. Ash also working for Conmed, actually. Um, he actually has passed away six years ago, and that's, that has left me here with two daughters only. Diana is in her second year um, of her doctorate uh, in White Plains, uh, going towards her physical therapy degree. And Marina is going to be a very good nurse in a couple of years she's um, uh, in her second year of uh, education college as well so they are off and and growing and and doing things to both in the medical fields actually so that they're they're helping people as well and that's that's another piece you know the seeds that you plant continue to grow your sister Tatiana is still in London and she also has a beautiful daughter named Lily (laughs) (laughs) she was named after me I think the 10 years apart were, you know, um, very traumatic for my sister more so because I was busy with family and learning a second language at this point, you know, after Germany, my sister was alone all this time and she had more time to, to, um, I guess to process. And I think I'm just starting to process what has happened since my children have grown. And, um, so yeah, my sister has named her daughter after me. And it's so interesting because, you know, time has a funny way of just um, smudging everything. It smudges the memories and it smudges the emotions a little bit. Um, it, I'm sure at times it's hard to look back and think, did that really happen? You know, did that really happen? Except that you're still not back home. You're still not where you grew up. And do you, do you feel that chasm? Do you feel that distance? Kelly, every morning I wake up with this and I was afraid this is the one hard question. You know, everything that has happened to me, I kind of relived either talking about this or not talk, try not to talk about this. But every morning I wake up and I have a big pit in my stomach and this will never end, unfortunately, because I've been here for 20 some odd years and I have never, I'm always going to be homesick. I think the difference is because I left without any closure. I left not by my own choice. And I kind of always hope that I will be going back one day. In a way, I'm still unpacked. That's a a really good way to say it. And I think even after 20 years, you know, you think you've created a life. Your daughters are grown. you've, You've done a beautiful job. You've helped so many people. And yet it's still not home. It is definitely not home. And I don't know if this would maybe also help understand better where I thought everything was over with. The uh, father who was very ill passed away and he's at peace finally. The ex-husband moved away. The divorce fees were paid off and the children were in college and I bought a beautiful house. I started waking up in the middle of the night with major panic attacks. And, um, you know, between four cardiologists and psychologists, we have decided it is not my heart that was racing out of, uh, out of control in the middle of the night. It's possibly 
uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is has a way of creeping on you when everything is actually settled and all the dust is down. Because the way I understand it, I was my whole life living on adrenaline. And adrenaline is the way I know how to live. And that's kind of gone right now. And my body's trying to find that adrenaline again, because what now? Everything is okay. Something must be wrong. Something's going to happen. So it's constantly. So yeah, panic attacks and dreams are also a constant reminder. I always have this returning dream where I'm home. And I wake up and I'm like, wow, I've dreamt so many times I'm home. And I'm pinching myself in the dream. And then I wake up and I'm not home. And is this horrible feeling, why? <laughs> I need to be home. Um, I want you to know I'm very grateful for everything I have here. I'm very grateful that in this country, I was able to fulfill my dreams, not in my own country. But I need to go home one day. Mm. And I'm sure I will. I'm sure you will too. I'm sure you will too. In the meantime, you have done not just a lot with the elementary school kids who are coming in, who are learning English as their new language, but also a lot with new refugees who are coming into the community. And I think just to to kind of close things out, I want to talk a little bit about how you interact with them and what you tell them about this experience of coming to America what they can expect, what's the story that you tell them as they come in and get settled? Um, I often find myself working with adults and children. I sometimes wonder that my purpose from being for being here in the first place and the profession that I chose is less about academics. I find myself being able to help people more to to with resettlement issues than with actual academics so with children is you know of course i teach i do my job where i teach them english and alphabet and we read books and we write and we speak in english but these children can relate to me on a whole different level and i teach them self-confidence and i teach them perseverance and i teach them faith and and trust and all the other good stuff that comes with being able to do anything else as well with with adults i work with parents of these children as well and um, I am able to recognize their fears and their, um, the most common one is I can't do it. I don't speak English or my English is not good enough. And I am who I am. I will be working this uh, labor, manual labor for the rest of my life. Where after interacting with these people, they realize that if I can't do it, they can do it too. And I think that has moved a lot of people. Actually, a lot of people have joined local colleges after taking some classes because it helps them to realize, hey, if she can do it, why can't I? I see my role more in helping people in that way than, you know, actually, you know, the, the saying you have, don't if you want to help somebody or feed somebody, don't give them fish, teach them how to fish. Mm. That's what my role has been so far. So... I guess I tell them to not to give up and there's hope. And in this country, there certainly is a possibility if you really take that uh, control of your life in your own hands and you, you know, persevere and you have that one person that pushes you either against the wall or with their words to go back to school. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to end because to leave everybody who's listening with that same message, you know, to never give up. And to not only recognize and be grateful for the ones who have helped you 
and for the experiences that have helped you, but also to become the one for somebody else. And you may never know when that happens. You may never know the full impact that your life has on somebody else, but to know that you have a gift to give and be willing to give it. And Lily, that's, that's what you do every single day. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. And there you have it, my friend Lily, and a story that is definitely worth sharing. <laughs> Before we close out the show today, I would like to share a little more background on the Bosnian refugees who found their way to the United States. From 1993 to 2006, more than 131,000 refugees came to the U.S. from the former Yugoslavia. About 4,500 came in through the Mohawk Valley Resource Center for Refugees right here in Utica, New York. In the years since then, they have become part of the fabric of our communities, contributing their skills, their minds, and their hearts to the betterment of us all. Many have children who were born here and are now first-generation Americans, also making their way in the world and contributing their own gifts to our culture. Lily's two daughters are a great example of that as they pursue careers in physical therapy and nursing. You know, Lily's story is absolutely remarkable, but I am reminded that it is only one of thousands. If you're interested in learning more about refugee resettlement in the U.S. or would like to make a donation to help agencies who are doing great work to help these families live a better life, please check out the Mohawk Valley Resource Center for Refugees at mvrcr.org or the Syracuse Rise Foundation at www.syracuserise.org. Remember that it just takes one, one story, one idea, one person to make a difference in the world. Lily is one. I hope you found her story inspiring and maybe you even learned something along the way. And now I want to turn it back to you because it's your turn to go out and be the one. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories on this podcast coming soon. <laughs>